Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. Welcome to episode two of series two, in which we'll think about, well, thinking. How can we think better, not just intuitively, but creatively, so we make the right decisions? It's an issue for everyone, but particularly because their decisions affect us all for political and business leaders. Here in Cambridge, the university's Department of Politics and International Studies has appointed a new senior research fellow to what they call their Centre for Rising Powers. And his background isn't what you'd expect. Steve McCauley has been a management coach, a business consultant and a senior exec in the music business. I went to see him to find out more about his thinking on thinking. So, Steve, the Centre for Rising Powers, it sounds like something from Hogwarts. <laughs> what are you actually thinking about? What the Centre for Rising Powers does, Trevor, is to look at the world as it is and as it's becoming. And, and it studies what's going to happen as countries emerge in the world and changes the world order. Uh, its origins are around the idea of the so-called BRICS countries, so Brazil, Russia, India and China. There's a man called Jim O'Neill, now Lord O'Neill from Goldman Sachs, who coined this expression. But there are more countries than that. You know, you think of Indonesia, think of Iran, think of Nigeria, and as these countries rise or fall, then the world order has to adjust. So what the Centre for Rising Powers does is to study that. And do you go to those countries and talk to them, or do they come to you? How does all that work? Well, within the, the Centre for Rising Powers is a research centre, and there are, there are various strands of research and all kinds of eminent people who are world specialists or world experts in these different subjects. Uh, very often they do go to different countries, and of course people come to Cambridge, and it ranges from sustainable development to marine law to uh, questions about faith and markets and, of course, politics. So when I first met you... You, although you'll tell me that you met me years before back in Nottingham, but when I first met you, you were an executive coach. Yes, and I still am. Okay, so, now let's just be clear what that is. That's not just a, a, a smart bus with a toilet in the back, is it? It's it's somebody who talks to executives. Yes, yeah, so, so I have clients who are usually senior executives in large international companies, sometimes in government, sometimes in smaller companies, and what I do is confidentially to talk to them to help them to think about all the challenges that they face in their job. Now, this is why it's a bit embarrassing interviewing you, because you spend your life interviewing other people. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm tempted to say, what would you ask yourself if you were holding this mic? Um, well, if I were holding the microphone, Trevor, I'd say, could you please sing me a song now? <laughs> uh, um, if, if it's a question of what's going on at Cambridge in, in relation to the Centre for, for Rising Powers, the particular thing that I happen to be interested in there is the question of adaptive leadership and adaptive public leadership. And you might ask, what on earth is that? I'm, I've, I've asked it. So the, the idea of so-called adaptive thinking or adaptive leadership comes from Harvard University from about 20 years ago. And what they observed was that, you know, if people are thinking about big, complicated issues, the temptation is to see the problem in front of you as if you've already seen it before. And if you think you've already seen a particular problem before, then you probably think that a pre-existing solution is the solution that you should apply to this problem. 
Um, I mean, if you think about your car and if the engine stops working, you might think, well, if I change the engine, I could fix the problem, and that would be a technical solution. But you might think about other things like maybe getting a helicopter instead. That would be an adaptive response to the problem of your engine being broken. So the question we're looking at is, when it comes to emerging countries, and by emerging countries, they could be post-conflict or emerging economies, we could even apply it to our country, given the state of play here at the moment. Um, the issues in front of leaders are so complex that no one solution, no one technical solution may be the answer. And so this is where adaptive thinking comes in. The idea of being able to think creatively, iteratively, flexibly about the, the issue at hand in a way that is open. In other words, you, you, you approach problems not with a fixed mind, not with some sort of dogmatic view where you already have a, a dogmatic, if you like, policy proposal that has to be enacted, uh, which may or may not solve the problem. So if I'm that leader and you're talking to me, is your mindset that I do probably have an idea, but you need to pull it out of me? Or is it that you've got some better ideas than I will ever have? No, my, my, my approach and our approach on this, when, when it comes to, if you like, adaptive public leadership at the University of Cambridge Centre of Rising Powers, uh, and also in my work as an, as an executive coach, is not to presuppose that I have all or any of the answers, um, but instead to stimulate thinking by asking effective questions. The issue is finding the right, like in interviewing somebody, Trevor, it's finding the right question to ask. Um, so the, suppose we bring in a world leader into Cambridge in order to have these kinds of conversations, which is what we're doing. Um, what we would first try to try to work out is what's the situation that you've got at the moment in fact and try to get that grounded in reality and have what could be quite long conversations about that um, and to try to understand the context in terms of you know where we are all, all the forces acting upon the country or the company its history ethos culture factors at play and get a really really good understanding of what's going on now at some point, though, what we do is shift towards the future and try to get a picture of what the future might look like if somehow, say, in five years or ten years, maybe 50 years from now, if somehow things were to go incredibly well, what do you imagine that might look like? Now, when you ask the question that way, what you tend to get is an imaginative response from people. And you get a different response from if you ask the question that says, given where things are at the moment, and if you just extrapolate from the present data, what does your analysis suggest? And that question's also legitimate, but you'll get a different response. So what we try to do is to situate people in the future to picture what a successful outcome might look like. And at some point, having got to that picture, then we can ask the obvious question, which is, well, what's it going to take in order for that to happen? What do we need to get done? What are the goals that have to be achieved in order for that to take place? It sounds as though the client has got to be very open to this process. It's a bit like going into psychoanalysis. They've got to allow you to take them on that journey. Yes, that's true. And there's a degree of trust involved in this. And, I mean, these conversations don't suddenly happen. You know, they're, they're, there's typically a prelude to that and getting to know people. But it's also to do with how we ask the questions and, and what the intention is. I mean, the intention in working with coaching clients and also in working with leaders from countries, and I've worked in a number of different countries on this kind of subject, is genuinely to want to try to understand where they're coming from and what their issues and ideas actually are. But also to find the questions that will shift people's uh, thinking by situating them in the future. I mean, there's an idea that there's, there's a branch of psychoanalysis that followed on from Sigmund Freud called psychosynthesis. 
And in, in Sigmund Freud's world, the past affects the present. You know, give me the boy until he's seven, I'll show you the man, said the Jesuits, and all that. The psychosynthesis crowd came along and they said, well, we accept that. We accept the idea that the past affects the present, but we're going to add another idea. And the idea is the future affects the present. Okay. Now, literally, that's nuts. Because since the future has yet to happen, how could it possibly be operative uh, on the present? And the, and the answer has to be the power of the human imagination. So if you can picture a future, I mean, if you think about, I mean, if you think about, I want to go on holiday next year, I want to go to, where would it be? And as soon as you ask the question, I don't know, Australia, Latin America, it could be India, and you're off. Okay? We can ask similar questions about the future. I've just been to Sierra Leone, for example. I've been doing some work in Sierra Leone on reform of the uh, of criminal libel in Sierra Leone to try to avoid journalists being arrested in the future. Uh, so they can ask questions like you're asking questions, Charlotte. Um, you know, in a situation like that, we have to be able to get people to think about what the desirable outcome would be for the country. And if the desired outcome is better than the situation they've got, that's when they've got license, or they can give themselves license to change their mind and change their position. Because politicians have got where they've got because they've convinced people that they already have the answers. Mm -hmm. And industry leaders have applied for jobs and got them because they've got a strategy and they've got a plan. It must take something to break down that level of confidence to allow them to, to think that they might not have all the answers. Well, I suppose once people are in a particular job, and imagine you're in a position where Monday morning you're, you're suddenly appointed minister for something, um, and the civil servants are saying, Minister, and what do you want to do? You know, at that point, it can be a very lonely place. If you're the chief executive of a big company, especially when there are big problems around, how do you, how do you address this? So the answer is... I mean, the, the risk is that people get stuck in the detail, they get stuck in the moment, and they get stuck in the present, or the problems are so overwhelming that it becomes really, really difficult to see a way forward. We saw this in the financial crash, where people just couldn't see five minutes ahead of them. Um, I think the answer is to acknowledge what's going on in the present, but then to try to identify how the future would look. But there's, there's a very important point. This is not just about the vision thing. If you remember... President George Bush seen it was all about the vision thing. It's not just about the vision for the future. It's also about being able to say, here's why it matters that we're going to fulfill it. In other words, what these leaders have got to be able to do is to articulate what, where they're trying to get, but also to be able to explain why it matters that they achieve this, what the benefits will be to the people, the country, the community, and to the world. Because it's the link between the vision and the benefits that will accrue that provides motivation to people. That's what people will vote for. It's the better future. And, of course, politicians understand this and business leaders understand that, which is why these conversations ultimately are actually quite easy to have. So is this something that we can take into our personal lives? I'm just wondering if you make decisions on that basis. Do you think to yourself, I'm going to buy that kind of car or that kind of laptop in a year's time, therefore I need you know, to to have a strategy that will allow me to fulfill that desire. Yes, if, if only. <laughs> if only. I mean, I, where, where I find it helpful, and I find it, I mean, I, I, look, I think it, this is a little bit like dentistry. Like, it's helpful to have somebody else do it for you. But, but uh, I, I, I do find myself asking myself these questions. Like, what is it I'm really trying to achieve here? And if that's to be the case, then what needs to happen in order for this to take place? And I think in that 
sense, that's how people can get to the idea of creating a plan of action. Um, all too often, though, I think, in especially in, in, in business terms, you very often find big businesses bring in strategy consultants who are brought in and they, they come up with a strategy and they have a 200-page PowerPoint and the graphics are fantastic, but sometimes I'm afraid they've addressed the wrong question beautifully. Um, before you can get into creating a plan, you've got to have an idea of where you're headed. So to be able to say, what am I really trying to achieve here? What, 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 would, be, what would be great to achieve? Framed in a positive way. I don't mean wishful thinking now, because with all due respect to both you and me, we are not going to win the next 100 metres Olympics competition, Trevor. That isn't going to happen. So just by seeing it and believing it in your mind, that won't work. But by having, uh, by having a pretty good idea as to where you're trying to get to, and then by asking the question, well, what do I have to do to do that, actually helps you sort these things out. Now, Steve, there are people, and I may have been one of them, are guilty of a certain cynicism about this kind of stuff. And sometimes the American business school language seems to come from some kind of post-religious fundamentalism. I'm just going to quote from your website here, which, in which you say that you're helping senior leaders in government to think in new ways that, quote, transcend the normal barriers to imagination and to tackle their biggest challenges. The fundamental idea is new, creative, dynamic ways to facilitate imaginative thinking and the creation of better policy options, blah, and blah, and blah. Um, it, it is kind of quasi-religious, some of this, isn't it? Um, who wrote that stuff? I, mean, I, I think we have to sack my PR people. <laughs> no, no, but what, what I mean by by transcending the barriers, is that there are barriers to thinking. It's about barriers to thinking and how we get those out of the way. Um, we've probably all been in situations at home or you know, with friends or in business meetings or government meetings, whatever it is people do, where somebody comes in with an idea and they say, I've got an idea, why don't we try this? And somebody else may immediately say, well, that will never work. Uh, we tried that two years ago and that nearly killed us. So you've, what are you on about? I don't want to do that. No. And before you know it... All the oxygen is drawn from the room and people just, you know, lose the will to live. And a good idea, or maybe a bad idea, we may never know, dies on the vine. Okay? The idea of creative thinking techniques, and this is what we're really talking about, whether it's coaching or adaptive leadership or creative thinking, it's about creative thinking, is finding a way to allow creative thinking to flourish, and then, uh, but, but not in a way that is so outlandish that you end up destroying the planet because it's a ridiculous idea. Um, creative thinking that can develop and then finding a way to analyse the thinking so that it becomes actionable in the form of a plan. So in, in, it, what, what that is referring to, and whether it's coaching or creative thinking, is framing a discussion with either an individual or with a team of people so that we can allow them, we can give them license to think very, very freely about all the issues without limits, without constraints, without self-censorship, without saying, well, we tried it two years ago and it wouldn't work. Because what we do is separate in time the creative process from the critical process. So quite often these conversations take place over more than one session. We might have a session where we do the creative thinking, and by the way, put all the ideas up on a big wall. It might be a 30-foot-long wall, but like a big storyboard, with maybe seven or eight people in the room, where at the beginning we say, we're not going to constrain our thinking by too many limitations at the moment. And then maybe you, you know, go off and have dinner that night, come back the next day into the same room, and then think... What were we thinking about here? And then start to think about, okay, in reality, what do we want to do? Which of these ideas are we going to take forward? Which are we going to kill off? Which need further work? And that's what I mean by transcending the limits to thinking.
Okay, so there will be people listening to this, I'm sure, Steve, thinking, well, who the hell does he think he is? What are your qualifications for doing this kind of work with prime ministers and chief executives? Well, starting as a guitarist in Nottingham, Trevor, is, is a great start. It's a very good it's start. It's a very good yeah. start. And, Never you know, made it in the charts, I, though, did you? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> um, but, but we live in hope. We still have 200 songs that need recording, so bring your microphone back. Um, no, but I mean, what happened in my case was that I went off into the business side of the music business and ended up a few years later as an executive on the West Coast, uh, running the international part of a digital music company. And actually, this was a fantastic experience. I traveled around the world. I did all kinds of deals, dealt with very senior people. And at leaving that company, and st I started to do business consulting for some big famous names in business like BT and IBM, eventually the BBC. I spent four years at the BBC. Help, and, and largely what I was doing was helping senior people in these organizations to think about the biggest challenges they faced. And that became quite a successful consulting practice for me. Um, subsequently, I met and then I joined a, a leading executive coaching firm in London and went off and trained to be an executive coach. So I actually have a certificate somewhere from the University of Strathclyde, indeed, saying that I know how to do this kind of thing. And over the last 10 years, I've had, you know, very many thousands of hours of experience of sitting with senior people and helping them to do this kind of work. So that's really where I'm coming from. You did me once, if I can use that phrase, many years ago. I remember sitting with you when I had a senior job. Let's not talk about what it was. And the thing I found about you was that you were not just a good listener. There was something else there that made me feel I was almost at confession, that you had that kind of face and manner that made me want to tell you stuff that I wasn't entirely sure I was comfortable saying, but hey, there I did it. What is it, have you been able to analyse what it is about your character and personality that brings that out in people? Well, I should first of all say, bless you, my son, for saying this. <laughs> um, no, no. You often say two hell marys. I'll be back with you. Um, I, I, well, I think it is important to be a good listener. And, and I th the, the, the kind of people who do the kind of thing that I do, I suppose, have a high degree of empathy for other people. I think it's also very important to be able to leave your ego hanging on a hook outside the room when doing this kind of thing. Because if I'm in a conversation with a client or with, or with the leader of a country or a company or something, and I'm trying to help them, it's about them and it's not about me. Now, I may have some ideas to bring to the table, but actually, at the end of the day, my motivation is to help them get good results and the right outcomes. If it's for a country, we want the country to be successful and prosperous, the company to, to succeed and so forth, not to have a particular outcome. Now, it's also true to say that if I'm working in a place like Sierra Leone, I bring with me, if you like, British values about truth, democracy, rule of law, and, and freedom of expression and so forth. I believe in these things. I'm not interested in helping any dictator become a more effective dictator, just to be clear. We're interested in the public good. Um, but I think there is something in, in being able to ask effective questions. You have to be able to listen, but also really be genuinely interested in the other person's story. So you don't go into the conversation with a predisposition to offer a strategy. You go in there thinking, I need to listen to what they're thinking and where they think they're going and then help them on that journey. Yes. I mean, the, the, the joke is that business consultants never ask a question to which they do not already know the answer. 
and coaches never ask a question to which they do know the answer. So, I mean, if anybody's interested in how the coaching process works, I mean, one of the principles is that you ask open questions. An open question is a question to which the answer is not yes or no, or left or right or black or white. Um, you know, are you going out tonight? No. Uh, where are you going tonight? I'm going to the theatre. Okay, you get a different kind of response. The second thing is to, as best as humanly possible, is to suspend judgment. Um, and I think this has in common various aspects of psychotherapy. And so I'm not a psychotherapist or anything like that. But I mean, having had a look at how they work, the, the, some of the methods are quite similar. So, so it's not the role of the person asking the questions to, to judge the person who's in front of them, but it's to take them for who they are um, and for what they're saying. And, to, and, and also to listen very carefully to what's being said and what's not being said. Because sometimes what not, what's not being said, or the tone of voice, is absolutely crucial. I mean, psych psychoanalysts look for slips of the tongue. Um, and I suppose uh, we can also look for anomalies in that particular respect. Back to the Centre for Rising Powers then. You're part of the Department of Politics and International Studies. Do you do any teaching, or is it just about research? Well, the the cent well the, the Department of Politics and International Studies is the place which grants master's degrees and doctorates. So it doesn't teach. It's not it's not a um, a college. It's at the university level, and and they do those kinds of programs. So so people come to th that department for those kinds of studies. Uh, the Center for Rising Powers is a research center. So within the research center, it does research. But various of the leading academics who are there, I'm not an academic, but the leading academics who are there do, of course, teach as well. So your role as a senior fellow is to what? To help them? Well, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of a number of senior research fellows, and specifically I'm working with the Centre for Rising Powers on the question of adaptive public leadership. So we're, look, we're having a look at what we mean by this subject and, in theory, how it might be possible to help produce better, more agile, more capable leadership and leaders in emerging countries. Um, and specifically and practically, so you could look at that and it could just be all theoretical. Um, and that's fine uh, up to a point. But what's more interesting in a way is to bring leaders in and actually help them to do the thinking. And what we're trying to do is to bring leaders from countries to Cambridge and then help them think, as we say, out of the box about the future of their countries. Now, of course, in the process of doing that, we'll learn something about how they think and how they work, which feeds the academic research as well. Do you think this approach would work for, um, I'm going to say, falling powers? I mean, <laughs> you know, um, could, you, could you bring in the, the current government and help them to sort out Brexit? Um, well, the answer, I think, is yes. I mean, I think that you can pl apply this kind of thinking approach. By the way, I mean, the, the one I've described is not the only one we use. There are other, the other approaches that we use, if you like, at the Centre for Rising Powers. But the answer is absolutely, because really what this is about is good leadership. And I've, I've done a lot of work over the last 25 years on leadership. I do know something about leadership and how leaders think and work and how, to, how they can become more effective. Um, What's really important is to be able to have an open discussion. I mean, the thing, the concern I've got at the moment, and it could be a negotiating position, but when the government says Brexit means Brexit, um, and all we're going to do is X and Y and Z, um, it's almost as if the, the conversation is then just stopped at that point. And the problem is that the series of problems are so vast and complex that they really need to be aired in full. 
Now, it could be that somewhere under a bunker in Whitehall they're doing this kind of work. I hope they are. Um, there's certainly a lot of work going on in all kinds of places where people are thinking about this kind of thing. I imagine the government is doing this kind of thing. But yeah, they, absolutely, this process can be applied to any situation. Um, you know, if you've got a big, you know, hairy problem that needs to be addressed, this is a really good way to do it. As a comparative newcomer, what do you make of the University of Cambridge and what, what is its reputation? Well... I mean, I've always looked at the University of Cambridge as being the leading university on planet Earth. And so I'm, you know, deliriously happy and honoured to be involved with Cambridge. And I think it's an absolutely magical place. And I've had a number of, of, of occasions where we have, we've on occasions brought visitors from other countries into Cambridge already and had these magical moments where we've been able to bring, for example, a high commissioner for an African country to Cambridge and then to arrange for maybe seven or eight Cambridge academics, leading people from different disciplines, from A to Z, around the table, and to have a wide-ranging conversation over, say, two or three hours about the country in question, the issues of Africa, uh, sustainable development, architecture, uh, technology manufacturing, integration of information systems. Um, these are incredibly rich conversations. And I, I think that Part of the role of this programme at the Centre for Rising Powers at Cambridge is to be able to harness that capability at Cambridge and put it in the service of people who can come to Cambridge almost like for an academic retreat and get their juices flowing, get their ideas flowing and come up with, then come up with concrete policy ideas which they can take back and actually make a real difference in the country in question. And of course we can follow on with expertise from Cambridge or from other universities and from governments and from business as well. And I, my personal view is the UK has a huge amount to offer. You know, we, we're spending something like £12 billion a year, every year, on international development. And almost nobody... Just stop and think about that for a minute. Yeah. Say that number again. Um, the UK is spending, it's about 0.07% of GDP by law now. The number is about £12 billion a year that the Department for International Development spends on our behalf. And, and that is to aid the poorest people in the world, okay? And, and we, I think we're working in 40 or 50 different countries. But it's a, it's a huge amount of money, and it's very, very controversial. Because, you know, if you look at the Daily Mail, you know, they would, all the sun, some of these newspapers will gladly scrap this. But if you go to these countries and see what UK aid is achieving, it's very, very significant. And I, think it's, I, th I actually think it's misunderstood in this country because it isn't really very well communicated. Do you miss the music business? Um, well, I'm still in the music business, Trevor. No, I, mean, I, I miss the music business in a sense, but I'm, I'm still in a band and still write songs and still finding artists. And uh, in, in my spare time, I was playing until three o'clock this morning. So, as you can probably tell from my voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's shocking. Um, Steve McCauley, thank you so much uh, for talking about uh, your Cambridge mind. It's been great. Thanks, Trevor. Appreciate it. Cambridge Minds is a TDC production for Cambridge 105. Our thanks to Steve McCauley. I'm Trevor Dan. Thanks for listening and watch out for more Cambridge Minds to come.